Chapter Two of The Hour of the Dragon by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two A Black Wind Blows. The year of the dragon had birth in war and pestilence and unrest. The Black Plague stalked through the seats of Belverus, striking down the merchant in his stall, the serf in his kennel, the knight at his banquet board. Before it the arts of the leeches were helpless. Men said it had been sent from hell as punishment for the sins of pride and lust. It was swift and deadly as the stroke of an adder. The victim's body turned purple and then black and within a few minutes he sank down dying, and the stench of his own putrefaction was in his nostrils even before death wrenched his soul from his rotting body. A hot roaring wind blew incessantly from the south, and the crops withered in the fields, the cattle sank and died in their tracks. Men cried out on Mithra and muttered against the king, for somehow throughout the kingdom the word was whispered that the king was secretly addicted to loathsome practices and foul debauches in the seclusion of his knighted palace. And then, in that palace, death stalked grinning on feet about which swirled the monstrous vapors of the plague. In one night the king died with his three sons, and the drums that thundered their dirge drowned the grim and ominous bells that rang from the carts that lumbered through the streets, gathering up the rotting dead. That night, just before dawn, the hot wind that had blown for weeks ceased to rustle evilly through the silken window curtains. Out of the north rose a great wind that roared among the towers, and there was catalysmic thunder with blinding sheets of lightning and driving rain. But the dawn shone clean and green and clear. The scorched earth veiled itself in grass, the thirsty crops sprang up anew, and the plague was gone. Its miasma swept clean out of the land by the mighty wind. Men said the gods were satisfied because the evil king and his spawn were slain, and when his young brother, Tarascus, was crowned in the great coronation hall, the populace cheered until the towers rocked, acclaiming the monarch on whom the gods smiled. Such a wave of enthusiasm and rejoicing as swept the land is frequently the signal for a war of conquest. So no one was surprised when it was announced that King Tarascus had declared the truce made by the late king with their western neighbors void, and was gathering his hosts to invade Aquilonia. His reason was candid. His motives, loudly proclaimed, gilded his actions with something of the glamour of a crusade. He espoused the cause of Valerius, rightful heir to the throne. He came, he proclaimed, not as an enemy of Aquilonia, but as a friend, to free the people from the tyranny of a usurper and a foreigner. If there were cynical smiles in certain quarters, and whispers concerning the king's good friend Amalric, whose vast personal wealth seemed to be flowing into the rather depleted royal treasury, they were unheeded in the general wave of fervor and zeal of Tarascus's popularity. If any shrewd individuals suspected that Amalric was the real ruler of Nemedia behind the scenes, 
they were careful not to voice such heresy, and the war went forward with enthusiasm. The king and his allies moved westward at the head of fifty thousand men, knights in shining armor with their pennons streaming above their helmets, pikemen in steel caps and brigandines, crossbowmen in leather jerkins. They crossed the border, took a frontier castle and burned three mountain villages, and then, in the valley of Valkia, ten miles west of the boundary line, they met the host of Conan, king of Aquilonia, forty-five thousand knights, archers, and men-at-arms, the flower of Aquilonian strength and chivalry. Only the knights of Poitain, under Prospero, had not yet arrived, for they had far to ride up from the southwestern corner of the kingdom. Tarascus had struck without warning. His invasion had come on the heels of his proclamation without formal declaration of war. The two hosts confronted each other across a wide, shallow valley with rugged cliffs, and a shallow stream winding through masses of reeds and willows down the middle of the vale. The camp followers of both hosts came down to this stream for water, and shouted insults and hurled stones at one another. The last glints of the sun shone on the golden banner of Nemedia with the scarlet dragon unfurled in the breeze above the pavilion of King Tarascus on an eminence near the eastern cliffs. But the shadow of the western cliffs fell like a vast purple pall across the tents and the army of Aquilonia, and upon the black banner with its golden lion that floated above King Conan's pavilion. All night the fires flared the length of the valley, and the wind brought the call of trumpets, the clangor of arms, and the sharp challenges of the sentries who paced their horses along either edge of the willow-grown stream. It was in the darkness before dawn that King Conan stirred on his couch, which was no more than a pile of silks and furs thrown on a dais, and awakened. He started up, crying out sharply and clutching at his sword. Palantides, his commander, rushing in at the cry, saw his king sitting upright, his hand on his hilt, and perspiration dripping from his strangely pale face. "'Your Majesty!' exclaimed Palantides. "'Is aught amiss?' "'What of the camp?' demanded Conan. "'Are the guards out?' Five hundred horsemen patrol the stream, Your Majesty,' answered the general. "'The Nemedians have not offered to move against us in the night. They wait for dawn, even as we.' By Crom, muttered Conan, I awoke with a feeling that doom was creeping on me in the night. He stared up at the great golden lamp, which shed a soft glow over the velvet hangings and carpets of the great tent. They were alone. Not even a slave or a page slept on the carpeted floor. But Conan's eyes blazed as they were wont to blaze in the teeth of great peril, and the sword quivered in his hand. Palantides watched him uneasily. Conan seemed to be listening. Listen, hissed the king. Do you hear it? A furtive step. Seven knights guard your tent, your majesty, said Palantides. None could approach it unchallenged. "'Not outside,' growled Conan. "'It seemed to sound inside the tent.' Palantides cast a swift, startled look around. The velvet hangings merged with shadows in the corners. 
but if there had been anyone in the pavilion besides themselves, the general would have seen him. Again he shook his head. There is no one here, sire. You sleep in the midst of your host. I have seen death strike a king in the midst of thousands, muttered Conan. Something that walks on invisible feet and is not seen. Perhaps you were dreaming, your majesty, said Pallantida, somewhat perturbed. So I was, grunted Conan. A devilish dream it was, too. I trod again all the long weary roads I traveled on my way to the kingship. He fell silent, and Palantides stared at him unspeaking. The king was an enigma to the general as to most of his civilized subjects. Palantides knew that Conan had walked many strange roads in his wild eventful life, and had been many things before a twist of fate set him on the throne of Aquilonia. I saw again the battlefield whereon I was born, said Conan, resting his chin moodily on a massive fist. I saw myself in a panther-skin loincloth, throwing my spear at the mountain beasts. I was a mercenary swordsman again, a hetman of the Kozaki, who dwell along the Zaporoska River, a corsair looting the coasts of Kush, a pirate of the Barakan Isles, a chief of the Himalayan hillmen. All these things I've been, and of all these things I dreamed. All the shapes that have been I passed like an endless procession, and their feet beat out a dirge in the sounding dust. But throughout my dreams moved strange veiled figures and ghostly shadows, and a faraway voice mocked me and toward the last I seemed to see myself lying on this dais in my tent, and a shape bent over me, robed and hooded. I lay unable to move, and then the hood fell away, and a moldering skull grinned down at me. Then it was that I awoke. "'This is an evil dream, Your Majesty,' said Pallantides, suppressing a shudder, but no more. Conan shook his head more in doubt than in denial. He came of a barbaric race, and the superstitions and instincts of his heritage lurked close beneath the surface of his consciousness. "'I've dreamed many evil dreams,' he said, and most of them were meaningless. But, by Crom, this was not like most dreams. I wish this battle were fought in one, for I've had a grisly premonition ever since King Nemed died in the Black Plague. Why did it cease when he died? Men say he sinned. Men are fools, as always, grunted Conan. If the plague struck all who sinned, then by Crom there wouldn't be enough left to count the living. Why should the gods, who the priests tell me are just, slay five hundred peasants and merchants and nobles before they slew the king, if the whole pestilence were aimed at him? Were the gods smiting blindly like swordsmen in a fog? By Mithra, if I aimed my strokes no straighter, Aquilonia would have had a new king long ago. No, the Black Plague's no common pestilence. It lurks in Stygian tombs, and is called forth into being only by wizards. I was a swordsman in Prince Almuric's army that invaded Stygia, and of his thirty thousand, fifty thousand perished by Stygian arrows, and the rest by the black plague that rolled on us like a wind out of the south. 
I was the only man who lived. Yet only five hundred died in Nemedia, argued Pelantides. Whoever called it into being knew how to cut it short at will, answered Conan. So I know there was something planned and diabolical about it. Someone called it forth. Someone banished it when the work was completed. When Tarascus was safe on the throne and being hailed as the deliverer of the people from the wrath of the gods. By crumb, I sense a black, subtle brain behind all this. What of this stranger who men say gives counsel to Tarascus? He wears a veil, answered Palantides. They say he is a foreigner, a stranger from Stygia. A stranger from Stygia, repeated Conan, scowling. A stranger from hell, more like. Ha! What is that? The trumpets of the Nemedians, exclaimed Palantides, and hark! How our own blare upon their heels. Dawn is breaking, and the captains are marshalling the hosts for the onset. Mithra be with them, for many will not see the sun go down behind the crags. Send my squires to me, exclaimed Conan, rising with alacrity, and casting off his velvet night-garment. He seemed to have forgotten his forebodings at the prospect of action. Go to the captains and see that all is in readiness. I will be with you as soon as I don my armor. Many of Conan's ways were inexplicable to the civilized people he ruled, and one of them was his insistence on sleeping alone in his chamber or tent. Palantides hastened from the pavilion, clanking in the armor he had donned at midnight after a few hours' sleep. He cast a swift glance over the camp, which was beginning to swarm with activity, male clinking and men moving about dimly in the uncertain light among the long lines of tents. Stars still glimmered palely in the western sky, but long pink streamers stretched along the eastern horizon, and against them the dragon banner of Nemedius flung out its billowing silken folds. Palantides turned toward a smaller tent nearby, where slept the royal squires. These were tumbling out already, roused by the trumpets. And as Palantides called to them to hasten, he was frozen speechless by a deep, fierce shout, and the impact of a heavy blow inside the king's tent, followed by the heart-stopping crash of a falling body. There sounded a low laugh that turned the general's blood to ice. Echoing the cry, Palantides wheeled and rushed back into the pavilion. He cried out again as he saw Conan's powerful frame stretched out on the carpet. The king's great two-handed sword lay near his hand, and a shattered tent-pole seemed to show where his stroke had fallen. Palantides's sword was out, and he glared about the tent, but nothing met his gaze. Save for the king and himself it was empty as it had been when he left it. "'Your Majesty!' Palantides threw himself on his knee beside the fallen giant. Conan's eyes were open. They blazed up at him with full intelligence and recognition. His lips writhed, but no sound came forth. He seemed unable to move. Voices sounded without. Palantides rose swiftly and stepped to the door. The royal squires and one of the knights who guarded the tent stood there. "'We heard a sound within,' said the knight apologetically. "'Is all well with the king?' Palantides regarded him searchingly. "'None has entered or left the pavilion this night?' "'None save yourself, my lord.' answered the knight, and Palantides could not doubt his honesty. The king stumbled and dropped his sword, 
said Palantides briefly. Return to your post. As the knight turned away, the general covertly motioned to the five royal squires, and when they had followed him in, he drew the flap closely. They turned pale at the sight of the king stretched upon the carpet, but Palantides's quick gesture checked their exclamations. The general bent over him again, and again Conan made an effort to speak. The veins in his temples and the cords in his neck swelled with his efforts, and he lifted his head clear of the ground. Voice came at last, mumbling and half-intelligible. The thing, the thing in the corner. Palantides lifted his head and looked fearfully about him. He saw the pale faces of the squires in the lamplight, the velvet shadows that lurked along the walls of the pavilion. That was all. "'There is nothing here, Your Majesty,' he said. "'It was there, in the corner,' muttered the king, tossing his lion-maned head from side to side in his efforts to rise. "'A man, at least he looked like a man, wrapped in rags like a, a mummy's bandages, with a moldering cloak drawn about him and a hood. All I could see was his eyes, as he crouched there in the shadows. I thought he was a shadow himself, until I saw his eyes. They were like black jewels. I made at him and swung my sword, but I missed him clean, how Chrome knows, and splintered that pole instead. He caught my wrist as I staggered off balance, and his fingers burned like hot iron. All the strength went out of me, and the floor rose and struck me like a club. Then he was gone, and I was down and curse him i can't move i'm paralyzed palantides lifted the giant's hand and his flesh crawled on the king's wrist showed the blue marks of long lean fingers what hand could grip so hard as to leave its print on that thick wrist palantides remembered that low laugh he had heard as he rushed into the tent and cold perspiration beaded his skin. It had not been Conan who laughed. "'This is a thing diabolical,' whispered a trembling squire. "'Men say the children of darkness war for Tarascus.' "'Be silent,' ordered Palantides sternly. Outside the dawn was dimming the stars. A light wind sprang up from the peaks and brought the fanfare of a thousand trumpets. At the sound, a convulsive shudder ran through the king's mighty form. Again, the veins in his temples nodded as he strove to break the invisible shackles which crushed him down. Put my harness on me and tie me into my saddle, he whispered. I'll lead the charge yet. Palantida shook his head, and a squire plucked his shirt. My lord! We are lost if the host learns the king has been smitten. Only he could have led us to victory this day. Help me lift him on the dais, answered the general. They obeyed and laid the helpless giant on the furs and spread a silken cloak over him. 
Palantides turned to the five squires and searched their pale faces long before he spoke. "'Our lips must be sealed forever as to what happens in this tent,' he said at last. "'The kingdom of Aquilonia depends on it. One of you go and fetch me the officer, Volanus, who is captain of the Pelian spearmen.' The squire indicated, bowed, and hastened from the tent, and Palantides stood staring down at the stricken king, while outside trumpets blared, drums thundered, and the roar of the multitudes rose in the growing dawn. Presently the squire returned with the officer Palantides had named, a tall man, broad and powerful, built much like the king. Like him also he had thick black hair, but his eyes were gray and he did not resemble Conan in his features. "'The king is stricken by a strange melody,' said Palantides briefly. A great honor is yours. You are to wear his armor and ride at the head of the host today. None must know that it is not the king who rides. It is an honor for which a man might gladly give up his life, stammered the captain, overcome by the suggestion. Mithra grant that I do not fail of this mighty trust. And while the fallen king stared with burning eyes that reflected the bitter rage and humiliation that ate his heart, the squires stripped Volanus of mail shirt, burgonet, and leg pieces, and clad him in Conan's armor of black plate mail, with the visored solidae and the dark plumes nodding over the wyvern crest. Over all they put the silken surcoat with the royal line worked in gold upon the breast, and they girth him with a broad gold-buckled belt, which supported a jewel-hilled broadsword in a cloth of gold scabbard. While they worked, trumpets clamored outside, arms clanged, and across the river rose a deep-throated roar as squadron after squadron swung into place. Full-armed, Volanus dropped to his knee and bent his plumes before the figure that lay on the dais. Lord King, Mithra grant that I do not dishonor the harness I wear this day. Bring me Taruscus's head, and I'll make you a baron. In the stress of his anguish, Conan's veneer of civilization had fallen from him. His eyes flamed. He ground his teeth in fury and bloodlust, as barbaric as any tribesman in the Cimmerian hills. End of chapter 2